Hello, friends, and welcome to Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and as always, we are talking Colorado true crime stories. As always, a huge shout out to any returning listeners. You guys are the best, and you are what keeps these episodes coming out every week. You are why I keep doing it. And if you're a new listener, thanks for checking it out. I hope you like the podcast. And whether you're a returning or a new listener, if you haven't already, go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. This is the best way for other people to find the podcast, and I certainly appreciate your help in growing our crime clan. So today we are hitting another milestone for Altitude Crime. This is episode number 20. I cannot believe how fast the months are ticking away, and I am so glad that you guys are joining me for the ride here. So in honor of our milestone episode, today I am actually covering our first missing persons case. We are going to be talking today about Christopher Abeda that went missing in 1986 and has not been located to this day. Today's story takes place in 1986 in the residential area of southwestern Colorado Springs at 3311 Ashwood Circle. This was the home of Christopher Enoch Abeda and his family. Christopher was seven months old, and his mother, Bernice Abeda, would wake at 6 a.m. to a mother's worst nightmare. On July 15th, when Bernice awoke, she realized that Christopher was not in his crib that was in the master bedroom where she and her husband had slept that night. Bernice immediately tore through the home to see if he was with any of his siblings that also lived in the house. When all the family members were awake and no one had Christopher, they all realized that the front door to the home was wide open. The last-ditch effort for Bernice was to call Tabitha, one of Christopher's sisters that was out of the house for the evening to see if by chance she had baby Christopher with her. When it came to fruition that none of the family members had seen him since they went to bed that evening, Colorado Springs Police Department was called at 6.33 a.m. The night before Christopher's disappearance was an uneventful one in the Abeda home. Christopher slept in his crib and the master bedroom with Bernice and Gil, his parents, and his siblings were asleep in their respective rooms throughout the house, with the exception of one sister that had been out at a friend's house. As was typical of most homes in Colorado Springs in the 1980s, the front door was unlocked. It was a safe area and a safe time in the timeline of crime and what we know of crime today. None of the siblings had a house key. They just came in and out of the house as they pleased. So with one of Christopher's sisters staying at a friend's house, the door was also left unlocked in case she decided to come home. Christopher's family was one that no one could have seen this happening with. Christopher was born on November 28, 1985, and was the youngest of seven children. All of his siblings were 15 years or older than Christopher was. 
And when you see pictures of Christopher, he just has these huge, beautiful, cartoon-like, beautiful, big blue eyes. His family recounted that he rarely cried and overall was a happy baby. The only thing of note for the family the night before Christopher's disappearance was that Bernice and Gil, Christopher's parents, had been separated for a very short time. And this particular evening was actually Gil's first night sleeping back in the home with the family. With the family having no idea where Christopher was, it was up to the police to start to track down some leads. And as is normal in all investigations, they started with the family first. And police really honed in on Bernice. At one point, they had five hours of questioning with her, and the overall questions were pretty brutal. They initially accused Bernice of killing Christopher and disposing of his body in a lake near their home. The family's home was near a lake called Quail Lake, and it actually at one point was drained to look for Christopher's body, but this search turned up nothing. The entire family was given lie detectors, and Bernice did fail two polygraphs early on. Her defense for failing these polygraphs was that she had been on tranquilizers in the initial days after Christopher went missing due to her extreme grief. And she basically attributed the failure of the two polygraphs to withdrawing from the medication at the same time as taking them. Now, as we all know, and I believe we've talked about in other episodes, polygraphs are kind of a double-edged sword. They aren't admissible in court because there really is not a super hard science to them. And I think where there's a double-edged sword is like it doesn't necessarily exonerate you in the eyes of people if you pass one, but if you fail one, it really damns you in the eyes of the public. So it doesn't really hold weight in both directions, but it does give investigators a key piece to kind of move forward with when they start in an investigation like this where there's really just no idea where to start and not any good leads. The police never officially cleared Bernice and Gil, but they never charged them with anything having to do with Christopher's disappearance either. A search of the house would not give police much to go on either. There was no sign of forced entry into the home, and nothing else in the house was out of place. It was basically like a person had walked in and right out with baby Christopher and touched nothing else. In addition to the front door being open, a basement window was also open. So the kidnapper could have entered through the basement window, but the family believed that the front door was what was used. There is a link at altitudecrime.com in which Christopher's sister Denise leads a step-by-step video of the route the kidnapper would have to take if you want to check that out, but I will describe it here. So entering into the Abeda's front door. It was just the wooden door. No storm door, screen door, anything like that. Once someone was inside the door, the stairway was right there. It would be a stairway walk up to the bedroom. And once you got up to the top of the stairway, there wasn't just one bedroom to go to. It wasn't just master bedroom. At the top of the stairs, there was a skinny hallway with multiple bedrooms coming off of that hallway. And the master bedroom was kind of near the end of this hallway. 
So Gil and Bernice, Christopher's parents, said that they were used to sleeping with a lot of ambient kid noises. When you have that many people sleeping in a house, somebody's snoring, somebody's going to the bathroom, somebody's doing whatever, somebody has a fan on, somebody doesn't, there's a lot of constant noise. So that was what they attributed to not hearing someone come in. Well, a kidnapper would then have to pass by the end of the Abeda's bed in their master bedroom to get to the crib. So a kidnapper would have actually had to have passed right in front of Bernice and Gill's bed in order to get to a crib. This was really an entirely different type of case for Colorado Springs police. The house didn't give any really determining factors in supporting any leads. And over time, police didn't really get a lot of tips. So the next thing that Colorado Springs police did was they put a tracer on the Abeda's phone. They assumed that possibly there could be a ransom for Christopher at some point. So they were hoping to catch that person when they called. But no ransom call or note was ever received, although that was something that authorities were really hinging on. Down the line, the Abeda family would learn that thousands of pieces of evidence were destroyed that were in the hands of Colorado Springs Police Department, including ones that had to do with Christopher's case. But the CSPD said that it had been years and years after the incident happened, and the evidence was really well documented. So they don't feel that this mishap really will affect potentially maybe solving this case someday. So I want to go ahead and knock out, when you look at this case, there is a name for a suspect that comes up a lot. And I really just want to kind of hone in on this on its own because it's got a lot of moving pieces. In researching this case, a lot of information about this person does come directly from the Abedas and their family. So I do want to try to be as objective as possible. Since some of these court documents I'm not able to get into, I don't want to spread misinformation. And I'm not saying that the Abedas are doing anything unsavory, but we all know that there's one side, the other side, and the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So as I always try to do with these cases, I want to try to be as objective as possible. So let's get into talking about this suspect. The tracer that Colorado Springs police put on the Abeda's phone did lead to this person, and the calls were traced to who ended up being Gil, Christopher's dad's mistress. So her name was Emma Bradshaw, and she was pretty obsessed with Gil, and this didn't paint her in a great light as far as becoming a suspect either. This also became very interesting in questioning because while Gil and Bernice had had a brief separation, from what I understand, Bernice did not know it was because Gil was having an affair, and how she actually found out about the affair was as they were being questioned. So awkward. So Gil had actually gone the night before Christopher went missing to reconcile with his family, and he wanted to be with his infant son and be there for his wife. Gil had actually not initially planned on spending the night that evening, but it just kind of worked out that way. So Emma Bradshaw had actually continued to try to contact Gil that evening and called many times that night. And actually prior to Christopher's abduction, the family had gotten a number of hang-up calls 
The Abeda family chalks this up to being Emma Bradshaw, but of course there was no tracer on that phone at the time and you can't really prove that, although it does fit the pattern that happened later. The call stopped for a brief time when Christopher first went missing and then started again many months later. And these were the calls that were found by the tracer that the police had put on. Gil immediately thought that him wanting to end his relationship with this woman and go back to his family would have created a type of motive for Emma Bradshaw. But after CSPD looked into her, they didn't really find anything else to link her to the abduction. However, according to the betas, Bradshaw had a history of break-ins and had actually stalked and harassed a previous lover when he attempted to end the relationship. Emma had also both broken into the home of this man and was seen near his children's school after the breakup happened. Again, take these with a little bit of a grain of salt, as they did come from findchristopher.com, and I didn't read the court documents myself. We do know that Emma Bradshaw missed work the day of the disappearance and that she left the state of Colorado briefly right after the abduction and then returned to the state just shortly after. When police looked into this, they didn't find that Christopher was with her in her travels and they interviewed her and didn't have the evidence to make an arrest, although she has not been ruled out as a suspect either. Years later, when Christopher's sister Denise met with a new detective, it was found that some people may have not been questioned just as much as they should have been. And according to the Abedas, Emma Bradshaw at the time had a relationship with the Sheriff of Pueblo, and they felt that this was protecting her in the questioning process. And while this definitely could be the case, at the same time, Pueblo is about 45 minutes south of Colorado Springs and has no jurisdiction in the city. So I know there could be some shadiness there, but I don't know how much I'm on board with that either. Now, I'll tell you, Emma being a suspect pretty much played out over decades. The most recent revelation in the case involving Emma happened in 2015. So one of Emma Bradshaw's co-workers actually tipped off the family. This particular co-worker had noticed some unusual Facebook information on her computer, and Denise, Christopher's sister, had also noticed some odd Facebook information on the Find Christopher Facebook group. Denise did take this information to investigators, but when that process didn't really move quite fast enough, Denise also went directly to Emma's employer and basically told them she was a suspect of this and Emma ended up losing her job due to it. So Emma Bradshaw actually had the right to sue the betas for defamation of character, invasion of privacy, and interfering with her employment. In November of 2015, the jury agreed with Bradshaw and decided she should have $150,000 in damages. The Abeda family filed a counterclaim, but the jury in that situation ruled against them. There was a petition created around 2016 to petition for a grand jury investigation of Bradshaw, but it looks like it's kind of lost some steam at this point. While Emma Bradshaw was never declared a suspect publicly, that did kind of come out during these court documents, but police have still not come out directly and named any person of interest or suspect. 
According to the Find Christopher Facebook page, as of May 2021, the family has met with a new district attorney who is Michael Allen to kind of continue talking about this case. But as of right now, that's where the investigation into Christopher's disappearance ends. This case gained a lot of media over the first initial years that Christopher was missing. His mother, Bernice, felt that the police weren't doing enough, and there really was a lot of contention from the family as they just kind of felt that the investigation was handled poorly. They felt that the police focused on Bernice, the mom, for way too long. And while police were doing that, the Abetas were handing out flyers. The case hit national news from Denver to Washington, Chicago, Boston, and everywhere in between. And most of the media happened between Christopher disappearing in 1986 and up to 1992. There was even some coverage internationally, like in the El Geraldo de Chihuahua in Mexico and the London Times in England. Christopher's story was featured on Inside Edition, and Oprah Winfrey even showed his baby picture on her show. The Abetas also went on an episode of The Donahue Show, which was another talk show that ended in the mid-90s. As recently as 2017, Denise, Christopher's sister, went on the Dr. Phil show. She was 15 when Christopher went missing, so she can recall a lot pretty vividly about what happened in the morning and ensuing hours, days, and months after Christopher went missing. There's also an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that mentions Christopher, but I think it was actually unreleased. I've only found it via a Facebook post on the Unsolved Mysteries official Facebook page. Cases like this I'm always a little bit torn on because there's always the question of are the police not doing enough or is there just no leads to go off of? Which it sounds like this was definitely a challenge for CSPD and this was a pretty unheard of crime at the time. So if they did botch the case, I'm not going to say they did no wrong. But you're also looking at a time in Colorado Springs Police Department history that they were kind of batting a thousand. Like they were doing great as far as solving murders and things like this. So I always have a hard time deciding which side of the fence I'm on in situations like this. And I think, honestly, when you're missing a loved one, like there's not ever anything enough that can be done. But Christopher's story sure was covered in the media a lot, and it really was covered for a long time. I mean, from 1986 to 1992, pretty consistently. And we've seen a lot of the cases that we've covered already that media pretty much dies down within the first few months. So this definitely was a story that kept telling itself for a long time. In lieu of having no leads and feeling like the police weren't getting anywhere either, there was a number of plans that the family enacted to try to find Christopher. Denise, his sister, recalled these elaborate plans to check on neighbors and see if anyone had a new baby. And Bernice, his mom, was constantly kind of following up on obituaries to see if somebody had lost a baby that might be similar to Christopher. And there were a lot of leads as to where he might be. Christopher's mom spent a lot of time in New Mexico following up on leads, and a number of leads came out of Texas specifically. 
1988, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got a tip that a boy that may have been Christopher was seen at a state fair in Chihuahua, Mexico. This was a 14-hour drive south of Colorado Springs. The Abetas immediately went to Chihuahua with pictures and renderings of what Christopher could look like. They got more than 75 tips, but still did not find their son. In 2011, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got even more involved in the search, but turned up nothing. And while the Abetas could not find Christopher, they found plenty of people willing to say they were him. In 2018, a man claimed to be Christopher, and little went public about him or why he thought he was a beta in the media. According to an Oxygen report about this, one of Christopher's other sisters, Lenny, explained that the family was open to the possibility, but really not trying to get too hopeful. I'm sure something like this is a total emotional roller coaster. This guy drove to Colorado from another state to get a DNA test. While they were waiting for results, CSPD Commander Jeff Jensen was not really hopeful as the person's information didn't really seem credible and didn't really seem to line up with Christopher's story, but they were still committed to at least ruling the person in or out. And this guy wouldn't be the only one. This happened four times in 2018. And I have to wonder why all in that same year, I mean, that was about the time that things like Ancestry.com were getting pretty big and it's, did somebody kind of get misled in a family tree and they ended up at that or, you know, are they just kind of a lost person that doesn't really know a lot about their family? But it seems really interesting that all four of these happened in 2018. DNA testing was done on all four of them and they all came back as not Christopher. The first three men were identified through tips and everybody provided a voluntary DNA sample to see if they were Christopher or not. The first man was identified on October 9th, 2018 and came from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Then another one on just a little bit later that month on August 29th. And that was a tip from an Abeta family member. And then just a few days later on the 31st was this gentleman that we first talked about. And then another one came from a tip from Florida on October 5th, 2018. But like I said, every single one came back not as a match. So the family did not find Christopher and these four men also did not find the answers that they were looking for. As the Abeda family continued to look for Christopher, they started to unearth a lot of alarming trends in child abductions. According to Marjorie Miller's reporting for the Los Angeles Times, as of 1991, just five years after Christopher went missing, over 9,400 children were labeled as missing or abducted in the U.S. And most of these children were thought to still be within the U.S. 7,150 of these 9,400 at the time were parent abductions which is typically common in a lot of child abductions in the U.S. It's usually a parent that doesn't have actual custody and is taking off with the kids. The Abetas really firmly thought that Christopher could become one of those children who was abducted and taken to Mexico, which at the time was a small but very growing issue. They noted with different media outlets that because 
they don't trust police, many Mexican families weren't really eager to report abductions. And abductions to Mexico made it a lot harder to trace a child's whereabouts and virtually impossible to return them to their parents. At the same time, the same issue was happening in the reverse, according to Mexican officials. Children were being abducted in Mexico and taken across the U.S. border. This is supported by illegal adoption agencies and unsupervised adoption clinics and lawyers that are just shady and will move these kids across the border in these totally not legal adoption systems. This was pretty common in border states and we've now started to hear about this happening in other countries like China and things like that, that there's just these notorious rings for illegal adoptions. And This isn't limited to abductions, but it can also be, you know, poor teenagers who have given birth and their children are coerced from their care. It's a really sad industry that's out there. And I think a lot of times people from the United States think they're doing something really good by adopting a child from another country to give them a better life. But if you haven't done your research, (laughs) it might not be so good. At the time that the Abetas were doing more of these searches in Mexico in the early 90s, there was no agency in Mexico devoted to registering and searching for missing children. Like I said earlier, oftentimes in the U.S., abductions are by parents who don't have legal custody of a child. So when a person who's wanting to do this has relatives in Mexico, it was easy to leave the country and leave the remaining parent without a way to locate their child. The U.S. Embassy had the power to check on if the child could be located, but could not send that child back to the U.S. In order for that to happen, Mexico would have had to have been a part of the Hague Convention. This required the countries involved in the convention to return located children to their country of origin. Mexico did end up joining the group in 1991. On the opposite side of this coin, The child often stays in the U.S. as it gets deemed that the child will have a better life than in Mexico. Think about the Cuban kiddo Elian Gonzalez from the 90s. If you're too young to remember this famous custody battle, Elian and his mother fled Cuba on a boat and she drowned. He was found and ended up living with his great uncle in Miami after he was located. His father, still living in Cuba, wanted his son returned. It became a huge media and political piece. And if you aren't familiar, I recommend reading into it more. But this was something that definitely overshadowed this particular case because the family in Miami was like buying him dogs and buying him all this cool stuff. And like he'll have such a better life here, even though the next of Ken technically would have been his dad living in Cuba. So if you want to read more about that, I totally recommend it. But when I was doing research on this case and kind of came across these pieces, that was the first thing I thought of. The Abetas were working with Mexican authorities to help find solutions to this particular problem. In addition, Gil Abeda was working with American businesses to fund joint U.S. and Mexico efforts to locate missing children. And let's be honest, reading an article about this in 1991 didn't reflect what we call it now. Talking about these illegal abductions and things are something we now know as child trafficking. The Abetas were also the head of families of missing children and through this nonprofit met with other parents of missing kiddos. 
and they really tried to use their tragedy to help other families. One of these very kind of dramatic ways they helped another family was caught on camera, and I'll have a link to this on altitudecrime.com. But Gil helped Merlinda Lujan travel to get her two children from Mexico. Her two kids had been abducted by their father and taken to Chihuahua. When authorities basically told her there was nothing they could do, Gil managed an entire operation in which both children were recovered and reunited with their mother. Sadly enough, both children were found in the same exact clothes they were in when they'd been abducted, and it had been a couple months at this point. Bernice, Christopher's mom, also befriended Kelsey Schelling's mom. Kelsey had been murdered, and her boyfriend, Dante Lucas, was just found guilty earlier this year of her murder. The two attended events together and really bonded together as mothers that were missing their children. Gil and Bernice kept their optimism that they would eventually find Christopher, and their children supported them while they devoted their lives to looking for him. The search consumed Bernice's life. Bernice had thought that Christopher was just taken because somebody else wanted a baby. Bernice was diagnosed with a rare gallbladder cancer in 2016, and at the age of 73, made her last plea to find Christopher via a video message. This message can still be found on the Missing Persons of America site, and I will leave a link on AltitudeCrime.com. But according to the video, she called Christopher, quote, the highlight of our family, unquote, and said, quote, I want to make sure you know how much you've been a part of our life even after you left, unquote. Bernice then died in 2017. Gil, Christopher's father, passed away in 2020 of a heart attack, and it seems like it was pretty unexpected. Denise, Christopher's sister, who was 15 at the time that he went missing, has now taken over the role that Bernice did of looking for her brother. Foul play has always been suspected in Christopher's case, whether it was his family, Emma Bradshaw, or any other person. Christopher is still classified as endangered missing and would now be 35 years old. If you know anything about Christopher or his case, there's a few numbers to call. The first is calling the Colorado Springs Police Department at 719-444-7000, or you can call 1-800-THE-LOST, or if you want to remain anonymous, you can call the Crime Stoppers tip line at 719-634-STOP, which is 719-634-7867. As recently as 2018, there is a $100,000 reward, and I'm pretty sure that's still in effect for anyone that can provide information about Christopher's disappearance or his whereabouts. Christopher's male relatives are about six feet tall, I have posted a rendering of what Christopher may look like now on the Altitude Crime Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And keep in mind, hair color changes and these renderings are not always 100%. So if you know anyone who remotely looks like Christopher, just call. The Abetas have been active on the Find Christopher Facebook as recently as May, and I have reached out to the family but haven't heard anything back yet. If I get any updates or any information from the family, I certainly will pass that along. 
So before we wrap up with any final thoughts, let's talk about the major theories in this case for, with what information we have. Option number one, Christopher's family did it, whether it was mom, dad, somebody in the house. This seems kind of probable because I just don't know how somebody gets in that far to the house without hearing someone. And you would have to know the layout of the house so closely. There is some motive here that with Gil's affair that this would be a way for Bernice to get back at him and that this could be a main motivation for infanticide. And then basically she would have been able to use Emma Bradshaw as a scapegoat. If this were the case, knowing that in years after the Abeda parents synced up with so many parents that were also missing children and helped them find children or attended events with them, it would be really, really sick if they were the ones who did this and then had this facade the whole time. Not that it's not possible, but it's pretty sickening if that's the case. The next theory is that Emma Bradshaw or someone close to the family took Christopher, which this does answer the question as far as somebody knowing the layout of the house and maybe someone knowing when the family would be up and a down and around or asleep or whatnot. And the Abedas had actually moved into the house where Christopher was taken from, from Manitou Springs just two years prior. So you would think if somebody was casing the house, that would maybe screw up um, if a family moved. Whereas if it was someone who knew them, they would know that they moved. They would know that they lived there. According to the Abedas, uh, Seanette, who was one of the sisters, uh, she actually had Down syndrome, had claimed to see Emma Bradshaw at her school or around a few times. And if that is the case, and Emma allegedly did this, then you have to wonder if maybe she or if a woman that looked similar to her even was maybe kind of looking at Seanette and then realized it would be easier to abduct Christopher. Um, so those are a couple options. We do know, as I covered earlier, what the motivation is claimed to be for Emma, that it would be basically retribution for Gil leaving her. But as far as someone else close to the family, I don't have really any suspects to pinpoint for that or what a motivation would be for that. Then the final theory is that a stranger came and took Christopher, which again would be pretty, to be frank, impressive because you'd have to go into this house that has like nine people in it and not have anybody hear you and be able to get directly into the correct bedroom that has a baby in it without anybody ever knowing and getting in and out. But the theory behind this is that it's somebody who just wants a baby and they come in and snatch a baby so that they can have a baby. So we'll wrap up today with a few musings. Musing number one. The other interesting thing about this is the fact that somebody picked up Christopher and walked out without waking him up. It's one thing to get in and out of a house without waking anyone, but it makes you wonder if there was something used to muffle baby sounds or on findchristopher.com, it's noted that his sisters would hold him while he was asleep and take pictures of him. So it makes you wonder if maybe he was a little desensitized to that and that could be how someone could take him out of the house without waking him up. Musing number two. This is another odd one. This is kind of like our last couple of episodes about Faris King and Bob Evans, uh, where I said Bob Evans didn't necessarily deserve what he got, but you got to be careful about what 
situation you put yourself in. And I kind of have to wonder that with Emma Bradshaw as well. She could be guilty of this. She could not. We don't know that yet. But if she's not, you know, she kind of got herself stuck in an odd situation. And because she had a history of doing some not so favorable things when somebody was trying to break up with her, it made her not look great. So be careful how you react, people. And imagine having your name linked to something like this for forever if it wasn't you. Musing number three. Uh, Like I said, the status of the petition to get a grand jury seems to be pretty halted. I have included the link on altitudecrime.com if you want to look at it. I do kind of have to wonder if Denise taking things into her own hands and doing the things that fueled Emma's lawsuit against the Abedas kind of derailed this. But again, also Emma could just not be the person. You can be a suspect and still not be the person that committed the crime. So uh, if you want to take a look at that, it is on altitudecrime.com. Musing number four. If you were wondering, Mexico does still not have an overarching system to find children. They are a part of the Hog Convention, which allows kids to leave once they've been identified. They can go back to their country of origin. So that's great. But... The most recent locations that have been done have been multifaceted U.S. operations, including Homeland Security, U.S. Marshals, and immigration. So being that child trafficking is still such an issue, there's definitely a huge need for this. Musing number five. So like I said, this was a pretty unique case for Colorado Springs detectives when it happened. And can you imagine how hard it is to search for an infant? Christopher was 22 pounds when he went missing. He would have no dental x-rays because he had no teeth yet. So in theory, there could be a missing person out there that they would never be able to match to. And this goes the same for fingerprints. You're born with the fingerprints that you have as you grow up, but they wouldn't have gotten them from Christopher that early on, most likely. So again, there could be somebody floating out there that could be a match that just nobody knows. I will say on a side note, if you have children, I would really recommend doing this one thing in hopes that you never, ever have to use it. The FBI recommends the National Child Identification Program. This program will go ahead and take prints of your kiddos, and then you are able to keep that. So should something ever happen to your child, heaven forbid, you have that identification. So if you have kiddos of any age, I totally recommend doing that. Again, it's called the National Child Identification Program. Musing number six. I have to say it's amazing the Abetas have such faith that Christopher is still alive. Because if I'm being really honest, I most likely think he is not. Christopher was still nursing when he went missing, and not that somebody couldn't give him formula, but unless somebody was really just geared on having a baby for their own, I I feel like most kidnappings like this are pretty short-sighted, and that ends up not ending well for a kiddo. I certainly hope that he is alive, and he's just out there somewhere living a life not knowing he's Christopher or Beta, but I just... Maybe it's the pessimist in me. I just don't feel that that's the most likely option. But regardless, still call the numbers I listed earlier if you know of anyone that you think resembles him in the slightest. Giving a call can never hurt. All right, guys, and that wraps up our first missing persons episode. So if you do have any information, please call the numbers that I listed earlier. But otherwise... Thank you so much for listening today. 
Please remember to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And connect with me on social media. I have Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. We do have a couple of recommendations coming up soon from my social media followers, so keep them coming. And as always, you can visit altitudecrime.com for source materials and merch. I have left quite a few interesting links on there from this case. The Find Christopher website, Find Christopher Facebook, and the Find Christopher YouTube channel that includes the layout of the Abeda's house are all on the site if you want to check them out. And you guys are the best. Thank you so much for spending part of your week with me. And I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 20, Missing Person, Christopher Abeda, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.